Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, listeners. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified. Today, before we get started, I want to remember the life of Barbara Yaley. Barbara passed away Monday morning, February 22nd, from a sudden and unexpected illness. She was an effective and tenacious public defender investigator for years prior to going into private practice. Barbara's strength was her positive spirit and enthusiasm for life. Rest in peace, my friend. So today we're featuring another episode of The Gift of Exoneration. Um, today's guest is Jeffrey Deskovic. Je- Jeffrey spent 16 years in prison. Despite DNA that showed the suspect was another man, he was convicted of murder and rape when he was just 17 years old. Jeffrey's here today to tell his story. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi. Thanks for having me on, Francine. Oh, thank you for being on the show. Welcome. So, um, i got to say, you are a walking miracle, I think, because you lost seven appeals and you were denied parole, and here you are, you know, exonerated, operating a foundation to help other people uh, who are wrongfully convicted. It's amazing. Don't you think it's amazing? I I do in many ways. I uh, pinch myself every day, while on the other hand, um, sometimes I really wonder whether I really was incarcerated for sixteen years. Really, it's just so in, it's just so incredible on both both sides of it. It's so like I mean, a nightmare. Think about, like how many? I'm sure we'll get into this later, but how many different random things had to happen even for me to be exonerated from you know landing you know, representation from the Innocence Project to the yeah. DA who would not allow me to have further DNA testing leaving office so that her successor uh, would then allow me, then allowed me to have the testing to the actual perpetrator um, DNA being in the data bank and thus having producing a match. I mean, it just it just so wow. random. It, the odds of any one of those things happening just seem to be uh, so long. So yes, I think in many ways it is a miracle that I'm out. Well, let's let's get into the nuts and bolts, Jeff. Um, so. What were you what were you doing when you were seventeen? What was your life like at that time? Well, I think you really mean to ask me what my life was like at sixteen. I mean, I was seventeen when oh, I 16, lost the okay. trial, but I was sixteen when I was arrested. Okay. So I assume you're asking me about my life uh, pre-arrest. Correct. Okay, so I was uh, I was in high school. I was um, having my. Uh, some of my best year ac- academically, uh, I was kind of quiet into myself in high school because I really wasn't familiar, that familiar with, with the kids there. But outside of school, I mean, I lived in an apartment complex in Peekskill, uh, which is a uh, suburb in Westchester County, New York. And I was kind of like the life of the party. So, like, whatever, there was a lot of kids that lived in that apartment complex. And so, you know, whatever activity I would suggest would pretty much be what everybody did from, you know, typical teenage things, riding bikes, playing sports like basketball, kickball, uh, video games, uh, swimming, that kind of thing. Wow. So you had a lot of friends. I did. And you, you were active in sports in high school as well? No, I didn't participate in very many organized sports in, in, uh, in high school. I mean, I, 
was on a swim team, and I, I did try out for the basketball team. But for the most part, I did not participate in very many organized sports. Because, again, in high school, I was quiet. I was to myself. So I seemed kind of strange to the kids in the school. Mm-hmm. I was, like, tight, tight and withdrawn. Well, and were you new to the area, or just, you just quiet? Well, you, no, it, it's, uh, again, I mean, in school I was quiet because I wasn't really familiar with the kids there. They were all like a year or two older than oh, me, okay. whereas, mm-hmm. um, you know, when the apartment complex where I grew up in, I mean, I was very familiar with the kids there, so it was, it was like I had two different lives in a way. Okay, okay. So what was going on? I mean, how did this come about that you were identified as this murderer rapist on this case? Sure. Well, the, the, the police interviewed uh, a lot of different students from the school, uh, and um, because I was quiet and to myself, um, I seemed strange to the kids in the school, and so the police claimed that some of the kids in the school told them that they might want to talk to me. Uh, so the other factor which the police said initially attracted them to me was that they claimed I was overly upset at the victim having uh, been murdered. I mean, the victim was a, a 15-year-old immigrant uh, from Colombia who was a high school student mm-hmm. uh, who really lived really a sheltered uh, life. She really never went outside unless she was uh, with her older sister or her parents. Uh, I mean, I knew her name. She, uh, she knew mine. She was in two of my classes as a freshman in high school, one of them as a sophomore. Uh, but we, we really weren't even on a high-buy basis. Mm-hmm. So uh, she, there hadn't been a murder in Peekskill for maybe 20 years. I mean, her body was found. She had been uh, murdered and raped. And so there was a lot of uh, rumors in Peekskill. There was a lot of public pressure on the police to solve the crime. Right. Uh, at some point, the police shifted their attention away from her stepfather and, and on another youth to me because of the factors that I uh, mentioned to you. So for about six weeks, the police played this game with me. Half the time, they talked to me as if I was a suspect, uh, pretending, uh, and, and uh, the other half the time, they would talk to me as if they needed my help to solve the crime. Mm-hmm. So they would say things like, the kids won't talk freely around us, they will around you. Uh, let us know if you hear any rumors. They'd ask me opinion questions and uh, congratulate me on my, on my opinion. Uh, they gave me a lot of attention. I mean, I grew up in a single-parent household, so they did the good cop, bad cop routine. I began to look up to the uh, officer who was planning to be a good cop as a positive um, uh, male uh, ro- uh, role model. And so uh, eventually they got me to agree to take a polygraph test. They told me they had some new information which they wanted to share with me, and but I had to take and pass a polygraph in order for them to do that. So I agreed to take the test, and so the next day, rather than report to high school, I instead went to the police station, uh, which meant that since it was a school day, it meant that neither my mother nor my grandmother with whom I lived they, they didn't realize that anything was wrong, so they didn't call around looking for me. They and they didn't, they didn't know you were going to do this? They didn't know anything about it? My parents did not know what I was going to yeah. do. No. Okay. Um, then, so they drove me, uh, the police drove me um, to uh, Brewster, which is in uh, Putnam County. So it was about 40 uh, minutes away. Mm-hmm. So that meant that I, didn't, uh, I wasn't able to leave on my own. I didn't know where I was. There were three cops there and there was the, that I knew were police officers, but then there was a polygraphist who was dressed as a civilian and was pretending uh, not to be a police officer. But he so was. I didn't have a lawyer present. I wasn't given anything to eat the entire time I was there. And he put me in a small room and gave me countless cups of coffee. And 
that I was attached to a polygraph machine, and then the polygraphist started interrogating me. Uh, he used a lot of third-degree scare tactics. He raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. Mm-hmm. So as each hour passed by, my fear increased in proportion to the time. Uh, I kept this up for like six and a half, seven hours. Uh, towards the uh, end of the interrogation, the polygraphist um, said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test result that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. So when he said that to me, that really shot my fear through the roof. Because at that moment, the officer who pretended pretended to be pretended to be my friend, he told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but that he was holding them off, but couldn't do so indefinitely. That I had to help myself. Unbelievable. Is it, now? Is this was... if I did as they wanted, that I that they'd stop what they're doing, and I could go home afterwards. That I was not going to be arrested. So, uh, was this Daniel Stevens? Being in fear of my life, uh, and uh, and being totally overwhelmed psychologically and emotionally, and then there's the push-pull dynamic. On on one hand, uh, then the possibility of harm has been introduced, and on the other hand, there's this false life preserver that he's thrown me. I took the out which they offered, and I made up a and I made up a, a story based on information which they had given me in the course of their interrogation. By the end of the interrogation, I was on the floor in a fetal position, crying uncontrollably. So I was uh, arrested for uh, uh, murder and rape. And was that Dar- Daniel Stevens that was doing all that? That was Daniel Stevens. Yes, along okay. with um, yes, and then along with the uh, police officers, um, Detective David Levine and uh, and uh, McIntyre, and that was overseen by uh, Lieutenant Tumalo. Wow. So. So what was going through your mind at the time when, when you made up the story and, and decided you've got you've to relieve the pain and you've got to get out of here? What, what was going through your ma- mind? I just wanted to get out of there. I was willing to say or do anything just to get out of there. And, you know, I wasn't thinking long term. I wasn't thinking about what was going to happen to me as a result of that. You know, and uh, I naively believed the false promise that... that mm-hmm that uh, Detective McIntyre made me, you know, which is that they were not going to arrest me. So uh, that, that was all I was thinking. My goodness. So, and you just, you just fed them back information that they'd already given you. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and let me just mention, because I think the, often the victims get lost in these cases. The 15-year-old that was murdered, name was Angela Correa, and... Uh, and it's since been proven that it was done by somebody else. But I don't want to forget her because uh, even though you're the highlight of this show, uh, her lo- she lost her life. And, I think uh, it's very important to remember the, uh, yeah. the victim. Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So you were arrested. What happened after that? What was the next step? A DNA test result came in from the uh, FBI lab, which showed that semen found in the victim didn't match me. But rather than ending the case and acknowledging they made a mistake, the prosecutor uh, solicited fraud on the part of the medical examiner. When an autopsy is done, there's audio and written notes which are taken contemporaneously as uh, findings made. Right. Uh, It was only six months after doing that autopsy, and only in response to the DNA not matching me, that this medical examiner uh, suddenly for the first time claimed that he found medical evidence to show that the victim had been sexually active, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to argue that it didn't matter that the DNA didn't come from me because it could have come from 
consensual sex that she had close enough to murder and rape so as to explain away the DNA. Mm-hmm. Basically, in order to wrongfully convict me, they were willing to trash the victim's reputation. Which, of course, is crazy because on the defense side, the rape shield law will not allow you to do that. It's just <laughs> yeah, amazing. Exa- yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. At the same time, the public defender I had was terrible. Uh, he never interviewed nor called as a witness my alibi. I was actually playing wiffle ball when the crime happened. Uh, he never explained to the jury the significance of the DNA not matching me. He never used that to argue that the so-called confession was coerced or, or false. Uh, when it was time to cross-examine really? this medical examiner whose uh, fraud was such an important part of the prosecution's case, uh, he never cross-examined him. In fact, he stood up in open court and told him, you're going to be pleased to know that I don't have a single question for you. Uh, then he very rarely met with me. Uh, he wouldn't allow me to take the witness stand. Uh, the interrogation was not video or audio taped. It was no signed confession. It was just the police officer's word. Uh, so the cops conveniently left out the illegal tactics which they had engaged in, which was to threaten a false promise. So I wanted and, to testify at the pre-trial yeah. hearing to put that information on the record. But uh, my lawyer wouldn't allow me to. He told me he hadn't decided if I was going to testify at the trial or not. And so he didn't want to have me under oath as to what happened in the interrogation room, saying, well, if you take the stand at the trial, then they could use your prior testimony to try to make it look as if you're lying, even Mm -hmm. though you're not. Mm -hmm. And then when we got to the trial, he wouldn't allow me to testify there either. He told me that it wasn't his job to prove that I was innocent. It was up to the prosecution to prove that I was guilty and... He didn't mm-hmm. think they did that. I mean, mm-hmm. That's kind of a rather naive way of practicing law. I mean, if you're charged with a crime you haven't committed, you have to do everything in your power to try to prove you're innocent or you run a risk of possibly being wrongfully convicted. Well, but, you know, from a, from a standpoint of what he's telling you, they would have, if you had testified, they would have used that, that statement against you. And no, they, uh, used, they used the coerced confession against me anyway. Yeah. What I'm saying is if I had testified at the pre-trial hearing and the judge had believed me, then, they, then the confession would have been suppressed as involuntary, and therefore there would have been no trial because they didn't have any evidence. Oh, I see. Okay, I see what you're saying. I, and, then okay. in the other, and I'm also saying that he, didn't, he could have allowed me to testify at the trial. I mean, if the cops are, the prosecution is presenting evidence of a confession, then as a defendant, you have to answer that confession in front of the jury or you're likely going to be convicted. Mm-hmm. That's my yeah. point. He didn't, yeah. he didn't do that. He didn't right. answer that confession. He really did nothing. And as a result of that, I was wrongfully convicted and I was sentenced to a, 15, uh, a sentence of 15 to life, ultimately doing 16 years prior to being proven innocent. And what's happened to him, Jeff? What has happened to that, the, that attorney? Anything at all? Oh, nothing. Nothing happened to him. Just like nothing happened to any of the uh, any of the uh, bad actors in, in my case. I mean, I did bring uh, successful lawsuits later down the line, but the entities that they worked for are the ones who, who paid that. They didn't have to pay anything themselves personally. And and although I think, from a moral point of view, everybody involved should should have had to go to prison for what they did. Nobody mm-hmm. ever paid anything criminally, nor will they ever. Well, this whole idea of prosecutors being exempt from prosecution is crazy, you know. 
I would agree. I mean, once, to me, if some, a prosecutor withholds evidence of innocence, if they mm-hmm. engage in prosecutorial misconduct and that results right. in, a, in a wrongful conviction, I think that they should go to prison because they've, in effect, used the legal system to pull off a, a legal kidnapping, if you think about it. I mean, I can't conceptualize it any other way. I mean, imagine mm-hmm. being kidnapped for 16 years. I mean, that's yep. in a, what happened to me. Yeah, and, and you were a baby. I mean, you were just a baby, at, you know, at 16 or 17 when you were convicted. Jeff, we need to take a quick break. Uh, we will be right back. Oh. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Raleigh convicted Jeffrey Deskovic is talking about the miscarriage of justice that put him in prison for 16 years. So, okay, so you're, you're in jail. You're awaiting trial. This attorney, public defender, is not, um, you, he's not coming to see you very often. You know, he doesn't, essentially what you're saying to me is he doesn't believe you, does he? No, I don't think that he does. Uh, yeah. up, in, up until the point at which the DNA test result comes in. And then, what was his reaction when the test result came in that wasn't you? What did he say? Well, he, at one point, he said to me, "Well, you you confessed to a crime that never happened." And what did he and say he was going to do about it? He didn't. He wow. he just said whatever I would. Uh, you know, so uh, he met with me like four times before we went to trial, and like three of them were at my initiation. And 
you know, he, I wanted to know what he was, what he, you know, what was he planning to do, and uh, so basically, in so many words, uh, his approach was, look, I'm, I'm the lawyer, I have the law degree, I've been doing this for a long time, all right, you're 17 years old, just sit back, let me do my job, I, I, I got this, and you know, that's that's what I did. I and regret to say, him, yeah. that's what I did. But yeah. at 17, I mean, who would who would not do that? I mean, many that's adults right. have never been through the legal system. I mean, that's you right. trust your attorney, right? I mean, that's what you do. That's well, and you know, reaction. when you talk to people that have been exonerated, it's almost, uh, I don't know, it, it almost is universal that they say they trusted the system. Yeah, you I know, would agree with that. When, when you're innocent... You say, how can I be convicted? I didn't do this. How can this happen? Uh, well, so, that's the same rationale that people utilize when deciding to waive their rights and speak to the police. Right. Well, do this, you know, what could possibly happen to me if I do speak to them? Exactly, because we're always told to tell the truth. <laughs> you know? I know, I know it. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, okay, so uh, did you have an investigator, Jeff? Was there an investigator working on your case at all? Well, the, yes and no. I mean, there was one assigned to my case through legal aid, but he didn't do anything. I mean, I met him a couple of times. He never, he never did anything. There was, in fact, there was no record in a legal aid file that has ever having spoken to anybody or done any investigation. And what happened to the people you were with at the time of this murder that where you had an alibi? Nobody ever spoke to the no, nobody ever spoke to the uh, alibi or called him as a as a witness. Didn't say again. That was um, that was that was how you know. In the end, I was able to uh, uh, successfully sue legal aid because there was a note in the legal aid file memorializing the fact that I told him who my alibi was and what I was doing when the crime happened, and that there was no report of the investigator ever ever having spoken to him. And did he at a later date ultimately come forward? What happened with him? Nothing ever happened with him. Didn't he know you were being charged with this murder? What, the investigator? No, I'm sorry, no. The, uh, the guy that you were with at the time of the murder. Yeah, of course he did. Sure he knew that. There was, yeah, that was, yeah, he was uh, a friend of mine. It was another kid. And he, so he, he didn't... didn't... You're asking me if he did anything on his own to come forward. No. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have expected him to either. I mean, he was a kid, and right. I told my lawyer it was my lawyer's responsibility to do that. Right, that's absolutely no question about it. Um, I just wondered if if he ever came forward. Was he ever interviewed at a later date? After, you know, well, when you I were exo- after I was uh, after I was exonerated. I mean, and you know, during depositions in the lawsuit. But by then, so much time had passed by. Oh yeah. He, he could confirm that generally in that approximate time frame we were we were playing wiffle ball in those days, but he couldn't he didn't have anything specifically to anchor his memory to right. either. So that was the that, best he could do or say. <clears throat> that's always the problem when you go back a period of time. I mean, even if it's last week actually, to try to pin it. Yeah, you know, what were you doing last week at this time, right? Exactly. Unless you have a planner and have it written out, unless there's something that sticks out. I mean there's that you know, there's nothing that would make that day, uh, you know, be important enough to get to the details. So, so how long were you, 
you know, when I was sentenced to 15 to life, I mean, I was then, you know, sent to uh, a men's maximum security prison. You know, I was not sent to uh, oh. a facility for youth. I was sentenced to a, I was sent to a men's prison where I was housed with fully grown uh, men, many of whom were guilty of having committed serious violent crimes. So, mm-hmm. and then, you know, I'm lucky I survived. Right, for sure. And so you were tried as an adult, not as a juvenile. Exactly right, yes. Yeah, okay, all right. Okay, so how long was your trial, actually, Jeff? Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, like a, maybe a week, three, four yeah. days. Scary, just scary. Uh, okay, so you go, to, you go to a maximum men's prison, and I'm, I'm afraid to ask what that was like, but what, the, what was that like? How did you survive it? Uh, yeah, I would describe that as a nonstop obstacle course featuring the prisoners, the guards, and the civilians as obstacles to the main goal, which is to overturn the wrongful conviction and regain your freedom. I mean, it was very violent in prison. In Elmira, there were like three or four stabbings or cuttings every day. You know, they, they were, there was a lot of gang activity. Uh, there were different points in time in the course of my incarceration where I was assaulted one time in which I nearly lost my uh, life. Because, you know, there's a vigilante mentality towards people who've been convicted of sex offenses. So, in their mm-hmm. minds, I was, uh, I was guilty. Uh, I, and, I, I, and, my, and another thing, when I was in prison, I mean, I had to fight off feelings of hopelessness, helplessness. Uh, uh, thoughts of suicide came through my head. And sometimes I couldn't actually believe that I was there, that all of this was really happening. Oh, I'm sure that's true. Amazing. And, and uh, you know, I naively thought, you know, that I was just doing a year or two until the next appeal would be uh, would be decided. I mean, I thought that the court system got better as you went higher up throughout it, but you know, it really didn't. I mean, I went through seven appeals, as you mentioned, but mm-hmm. I actually only received uh, one substantive ruling. Uh, on, on, the, on the merits of the issues I was claiming, that was from the appellate division. I mean, their decision really made no sense. I mean, they wrote in their opinion that there was overwhelming evidence of guilt, which all they had is this coerced confession under obtained under highly questionable circumstances, and the DNA didn't match me. So they they ruled against me five nothing, and from that point, I never received a substantive ruling again. My lawyer moved to re-argue the case in front of them, arguing that their decision was running contrary to the facts and the law, but the re-argument motion was denied. The Mm -hmm. Court of Appeals uh, declined to give me permission to appeal to them. I lost in the federal court because my attorney was given the wrong information by the court clerk, and as a result of that, my petition arrived four days late, which the district district attorney at the time, uh, Janine Pirro, her office took the position that those four days were more being late were more important than the fact that I was arguing my innocence. I just put aside the fact that I'm only late because the court clerk gave me the wrong right. information. Right. And so then I was stuck challenging that procedural ruling. And the next two courts at the Federal Court of Appeals where uh, US, future U.S. Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor was, uh, heard two of my challenges to that uh, decision. So she upheld that decision twice. And then the U.S. Supreme Court declined to give me permission to appeal to them. Amazing. Uh, so really I amazing. There, I wrote letters for four years. I mean, the, the position was I had to try to find a lawyer who'd take my case for free because I didn't have any 
money to hire one. I had to try to find an investigator also and hope that in tandem they could uh, somehow find some previously unknown evidence of innocence without mm-hmm. which the court was no longer willing to hear from me. Mm-hmm. So I wrote letters for four years, rarely hearing back from anybody. Uh, eventually, um, I, I, wrote, I got in contact with an investigator, uh, Claudia Whitman. I was writing a... I was writing a book author in care of a publishing company, but someone at the publishing company read the letter and instead sent it to uh, Miss Whitman. So she wrote me back right away, and she told me, look, I'm, you know, I work out of Maine and also out of Colorado, so your case is too far away for me to directly work on it, but I can help you do the networking to try to connect mm-hmm. you with the legal professionals to do the substantive work. Mm-hmm. So one of her ideas was the winning one. She told me to write the Innocence Project again, and she um, lobbied them from outside the organization, and she got a number of other individuals to write letters to them also. And uh, and at the same time, one of the uh, intake workers there, at the t- uh, Maggie Taylor, uh, every time the, they would, uh, the lawyers would decide that they didn't want to take my case because uh, due to the pre-existing DNA exclusion, mm-hmm. She would go back to the drawing board and come up with a new theory and represent my case. Mm-hmm. Eventually, she got them to agree to take to take my case. Is that and that's a New York? Go ahead. That's the New York Innocence Project. That's the New York Innocence Project, yeah. and that's the one that P- Barry Sheck and Peter Newfor- Newfield are involved in. Exactly. Okay. All right. And Claudia Whitman, uh, you know, I've heard that name before. She's based out of Colorado. She's based out of Colorado and Maine. She's, uh, she has her, she, uh, she's a, she, in addition to doing investigative work on wrongful conviction cases, she's also an anti-death penalty abolitionist, and she's involved with the uh, organization Enduran uh, of Cure. So she, uh, but she, her, she really was the key to everything. I mean, she connected me to the Innocence Project. I mean, if she hadn't suggested that they that I write them and if she hadn't lobbied them from outside the organization if she didn't get other respected yeah. legal professionals to do the same thing I don't believe yeah. the Innocence Project would have taken my case and as a result of that I would still would be inside I mean I think the same could be said of Maggie Taylor I mean how many how many non-lawyers who work in intake are going to mm-hmm. represent a case after the lawyers turn it down I mean much mm-hmm. less do that several times exactly she right not, she just did not give up well, you know, Jeff, this is a strong message for investigators out there in listener land that are, are hearing this program because, you know, a lot of us periodically get letters from people in prison claiming their innocence. It happens fairly frequently. And uh, the fact that you had somebody that believed in you and became an advocate on your behalf is just great. And, uh, you know, investigators, all of you out there, we should be doing more of that. Uh, I would agree, and just in terms of distinguishing, you know, uh, what you know, what people are telling the truth and which are not, what what case to get involved in. I mean, the key is, I mean, if somebody, you know, is that I had something objective to hang my hat on. You know, was the mm-hmm. DNA test, and then also the questionable manner in which the confession was uh, was 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 obtained. I mean, so I think that that would be a good thing, and then and, and then also. A lot of times, the key is not is not even the legal professionals. It's, it's someone building the bridge. And in a case of the, an investigator, I mean, in a non-DNA case, I mean, if their investigator doesn't come up with any evidence, then there's nothing for a lawyer to file a post-conviction motion based on. Right. Right. 
Yeah. So once I got uh, the Innocence Project to agree to represent me, uh, then uh, short, at some point after that, uh, uh, Pirro had left office, and so Barry Sheck had approached the uh, new DA of Westchester to uh, uh, got her to agree to allow me to have further DNA testing without having to litigate over it. So they took the crime scene DNA evidence, which already didn't match me, and they compared it to the DNA data bank, and it matched the actual perpetrator whose DNA was only in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime. He committed an unrelated murder right. uh, three and a half years later of a school teacher and uh, mother of two. Oh, so on November 20th, 2006, the conviction was overturned. I was released. And my, I went back to court November 2nd, 2006, at which point all the charges against me were dismissed on grounds of actual innocence. Fabulous. And so the actual perpetrator was Stephen Cunningham. Yes, it was. And he was uh, he was in prison for this murder of the uh, the woman, mother of two children, yeah. and uh, then he admitted to the rape and the murder of Angela Correa. Yes, he did, but only only after the DNA matched him. So I mean, the the gig was kind of up anyway. So, had he not admitted that? Would that have changed no. anything that happened with you? No. Okay. No, because the DNA matched him. So he think at the time of the crime, he was fifteen. I was sixteen. I mean, I mean, the victim, Angela, Angela was fifteen. I was sixteen. Uh-huh. He was twenty-nine. What innocent explanation could he possibly have come up with for how his uh, semen would have gotten inside her? Right. What? Right. Exactly. So the and of course there was no. There was no connection between uh, Stephen and, and myself. I never saw him a day in my life up until that point of uh, where um, you know, I saw him in court. Um, you know, it's just, um, I'm always, no matter how often I hear these stories, I'm always astonished. I really, uh, it's, it's just not what the general public believes goes on. It's not what juries believe goes on. You know, right. Most people think on a simplistic level, well, mm-hmm. obviously, if the, you didn't do it, then the police wouldn't have arrested you for it, right? That's right. That's common. it. If you're arrested and then, for uh, it. Only, uh, only uh, guilty people are convicted. And, you know, when a wrongful conviction does happen, it's, uh, it's a very rare thing. But, you know, actually, it's not. Uh, what's rare, really, is when people are exonerated. That's what's rare. I mean, last year, 149 people were uh, exonerated. The year before that, 137 were. And then in 2012 and 2013, 91 people were. So really, I think it's kind of the iceberg theory. I mean, what we see above the surface is just a fraction of what's really uh, going exactly. on. Exactly. There's so many more in prison that have been wrongfully convicted as well. It's uh, I, And you know, it used to be that you'd hear this and you'd say, oh yeah, everybody says they're innocent, right? But it's really true. There are a lot of people that are innocent that are in prison. A lot of, yeah, there listen. are a lot of people that are innocent that are, that are in prison. I think it's, it's kind of a misconception as well to say that everyone in prison says they're, they're innocent. I mean, no, no, they don't. I mean, uh, uh, there's, it, in some ways it works against you. I mean, it certainly uh, worked against me. I mean, I... You know, I, they wanted me, the prison authorities wanted me to take and complete the sex offender training program because uh, that was mm-hmm. a program that they, they told me that mm-hmm. the parole board would want to see me have completed. But there was a guilt admission requirement. And if I didn't admit guilt, then they would have 
Uh-huh. And so uh-huh. they would kick me out of the program, and I'd be deemed to have refused. But you know, I told them, "Look, I'm not. I'm not admitting that I'm guilty for something that I didn't do." Right. So I didn't take the program, and then when I went to the parole board. Um, I asserted my innocence again, and considering that in many ways I was like an ideal candidate, I mean, I had a really good educational record, my disciplinary record was good, you know, it's, it's, it seems kind of clear that they used my assertion of innocence uh, against me. I actually didn't believe that you had, I mean, I didn't realize that you had to admit complicity to be involved in the sex offender program in prison, so that's, uh, that's new information for me. Right. I mean, that's another. But again, that rigid, that rigid one size fits all approach. I mean, it puts wrongfully convicted prisoners who've been wrongfully convicted of a sex of a sex mm-hmm. offense in, in a catch twenty two position. I mean, it's kind of unseemly for the state to require people to lie in order to try to regain their freedom. I mean, they, it's known that wrongful convictions occur, so uh, including in sex offense cases. So it's this inflexible position really doesn't make. Uh, any sense okay Jeff we have to take another break hang in with us we'll be right back okay news opinion can you hear me hear me your voice counts call toll free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 voiceamerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Wrongfully convicted Jeffrey Deskovic has been talking about his uh, trial, his years in prison, but now we want to shift gears a little bit because he has had an amazing life since he was exonerated in 2006. And by the way, this is his 10-year anniversary as of, we were just talking about this offline, September 20th, 2016. It'll be 10 years and uh, he's going to have a, a huge celebration and we congratulate him. So, but 
Jeff has done so many things. I have to say that you graduated with a BA in behavioral science, a master's from John Jay College. Uh, you're listed as John Jay College of Criminal Justice 50 at 50 in, as one of the top 50 standout students, and it's 50-year history. Uh, then you've won all these awards, New Yorker of uh, the Week Award in 2015, the 2015 Humanitarian of the Year Award by the New Rochelle Chamber of Commerce for your advocacy work. I mean, you've really made a contribution, Jeff. And what's so ironic about this is that had you not been wrongly convicted, you wouldn't be able to make any of these contributions. I, I agree with you, and I think that this is my life's calling, and I think that this is the reason why I went through what I uh, what, what I did in and, and a higher sense, because as you point out, if I hadn't, I wouldn't have been able to do uh, any of those things, and I you know, wouldn't be able to continue to do the work that I anticipate continuing in the future. And, and also, it sounds to me like, uh, I mean, you got a huge award um, for the misconduct that took place, and you've turned that into your Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation for Justice. I did. I wanted to uh, reach back and help similarly uh, situated uh, people, and then I also wanted to help prevent this from happening to others through raising awareness and seeking changes in the law. Uh, doing it through the vehicle of a nonprofit level, I consider to be like a serious ramp up from just doing uh, work as an individual advocate. Uh, mm-hmm. When I was initially released, uh, I did a lot of things as an individual advocate. So I was I did a lot of presentations. I was a columnist for five years at a weekly newspaper. I did a lot of media interviews, uh, trading privacy for uh, awareness. I. Um, educated elected officials. I went to different legislative hearings, but certainly uh, freeing people who are wrongfully convicted or helping exonerees reintegrate back into society afterwards, those are definite steps, important things to me that I would not be able to do on my own and hence deciding to start uh, a nonprofit organization to do those things. Absolutely. And it really is difficult to reintegrate, isn't it? It's very difficult uh, just to, to concretize that a little bit in my personal experience. So, for, first of all, you're released with nothing. The state doesn't give you anything, although some states do have compensation statutes on the books. You actually have to file a lawsuit and pursue that. I mean, that takes between three to seven years. Um, you know, 19 states don't have compensation. Uh, New York does, but it took me five years before I received any compensation. Technology had changed, so we didn't have internet, GPS, cell phones. Uh, it, right. was hard to, it was hard to reestablish ties with uh, immediate and extended family because uh, so much time had passed by since I interacted uh, with them. Uh, certainly the world was much different culturally. Uh, there was the psychological after effects of the experience. I mean, it's typical to have... Um, post-traumatic stress disorder to uh, feeling like one's moving at a slower speed than the rest of society, uh, feeling of having been suspended in time, uh, fear upon seeing uh, law enforcement. Uh, I was never able to obtain gainful employment because I didn't have the same level of job experience that other uh, applicants to jobs um, had. I uh, nearly ended to homeless shelter. Thank God that Mercy College, which had given me the scholarship, finished the just agree, allowed me to stay on campus or I would have um, been in a homeless shelter. So it was, uh, it was very, uh, it was difficult. I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like it was an injury after an injury. 
but at some point I was um, compensated and uh, I, you know, uh, continued the education uh, along the way and uh, I started the nonprofit thing, organization, and I made a lot of progress having done a lot of work with uh, mental health professionals. You know, um, it's, it's hard to imagine, so I'm just... Uh, just quick calculation. You were exonerated in 2006, and you were in prison for 16 years. So that means you were convicted in 1990, correct? Correct. Is that right? Yeah, okay. it is. And if, you, and if you think of what has happened in the world from ni- in 1990 to date, I mean, uh, it was 1990 that Saddam Hussein ordered the Iraq evasion of Kuwait. Yes. I mean... That was the beginning of Operation Shield. We, you're right. We didn't have cell phones. In fact, um, well, actually, we had those big clunky things <laughs> where you had a had a battery didn't work in your very well trunk. either. By the way, very limited range, <laughs> and they didn't work very well. Right, that's right. We had those at our office, but uh, there were so many things that um, were, was going on at that time. That was when The Simpsons first aired, for example. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. <laughs> so there's so many things that have happened that you can't even imagine uh, that time period and what and how rapidly technology changes all of those things. I can't. I mean, you must have felt like you were. I was like a fish out of water. It took a long time to understand how to use the technology. And, and, you know, and, and the more I learned, the more tied in I felt. But it also meant that, you know, my feeling of not belonging from the technological aspect to really not knowing anybody out, out here, having long ago lost touch with most of my family and my um, yeah. Uh, former friends and, you know, difficulties trying to reestablish ties and then the, you know, the culture not being the same, uh, being dramatic, dramatically different. I mean, there were many times where I felt like, you know, I really didn't, uh, I don't fit in out here. I don't really belong out here. This isn't really my, my world. I don't belong inside because I didn't do anything wrong, but yet I don't fit in out here yeah. either. So it was, uh, uh, a lot. It was a lot of loneliness, a lot of depression, a lot of frustration. It was a really difficult time. It really wasn't the uh, happily ever after. I mean, that all that stuff. I mean, I got to the good place that I'm at now as a result of a lot of time passing by. Yeah. Things, a lot of a lot of work, a lot of difficult days. Exactly. You literally, it was like you were dropped from outer space. It, yeah, and you know, it it it, uh, it absolutely did. But I think that one of the keys beyond the working with the mental health professionals is, you know, the advocacy work that I've done. I mean, I found that to be, you know, very meaningful. I find it to be healing and uh, mm-hmm. cathartic. Mm-hmm. And I define myself as an advocate with, you know, my backstory as my motivation. But, I mean, I'm more than the uh, backstory. I mean, that's just what, what drives me. And, you know, I've really worked hard in putting together a body of work to establish that. And my my, my, my views and how I perceive things is not based solely on my experience. It's also based on my uh, formal education as well. Right. Now, you're an advisory board member of It Can Happen to You. What is that organization? That's a coalition group made made up of um, uh, individual nonprofit organizations and as well as individual advocates and even just lay people who uh, each of which is all, all of whom are, youth, are autonomous, but who come together specifically uh, just to work on uh, pre- uh, legislation pertaining to preventing wrongful convictions as well as false accusations. Mm-hmm. So that coalition group is a recognition that the go it alone 
mentality of a lot of nonprofits when it comes to policy issues that that's not very effective at getting legislation passed. And so we take the, the group approach. And so that, that organization um, is, is the vehicle through that. I mean, that was started by uh, Bill Bastic, who was a former Monroe County legislator who found himself falsely accused of a rape, which he didn't commit. Uh, you know, he had... Uh, and he had like a mortgage and he was, a, he had access to funds where he could defend himself and so he was acquitted in like an hour. But, uh, <laughs> but, but the result, but his reputation, you know, was permanently destroyed and they wiped out of his course. savings, you know, the mortgage thing and so he took a big hit. So he had coalition building skills from when he was a legislator and then also worked, working in just a, a environmental space. So he decided to start a coalition group using those same uh, skills and so mm-hmm. he uh, reached out to me as well as many other people to you know join the organization and so through that organization we've nearly passed the uh, bill on, which would create a oversight board for prosecutors called Commission on Prosecutor Conduct. Great, that's fabulous. Now you're also a co-owner of Recharge Beyond the Bars Reentry Game. What what is that? Explain so that there, to me. It, there's a reentry tool that uh, it facilitates. Uh, formerly incarcerated people, whether um, innocent or guilty, reconnecting with uh, their family members uh, and friends. So often there's a communication barrier. Uh, People who are formerly incarcerated find it difficult to discuss that period of their life while they were incarcerated, and even their reintegration difficulties when they, with people that they know don't have a frame of reference for really uh, understanding that, having not gone through it. So it's hard for them to to communicate. Mm -hmm. At the same time, uh, family and friends are often want to talk about that period of life. They want to help, but they're not really sure of what to say, what not to say, to right. discuss, but not discuss it. The game functions as a icebreaker and imposes questions to which you know spark dialogue. Oh, that's excellent! And is that done? What kind of a format is that done in? It, it, well, there's a there's a deck of cards that has. Uh, six questions on each. Some are just general questions. Some are group activities, and some are gear questions, which are just only someone who was formerly incarcerated would answer, but everybody can respond to that answer. So there's cards that have the questions, and then there's numbers cards, one through six. And so you turn up a number, and say if you pull a one, that means you would read question number one. Okay. Okay. Interesting. That's a great process. So I, I, absolutely, I used the game. Uh, I used the game myself. Uh, when Alessia yeah. Robbins was a psychotherapist, she uh, developed the game. But she was looking for a strategic partner, and she thought that uh, I could uh, I could assist her uh, with that. So, you know, I own forty nine percent of the of the of the of the game. So I made an investment in it, and and I'm, I'm co co own it. And uh, it's a really good product. We're out in seventeen states, and. Uh, we're, you know, we're uh, looking to uh, continue to bring it, bring it to people. Interesting. And now, is it for sale? It is for sale. Yes, it's. Uh, yeah, it retails for um, uh, twenty nine ninety five. People can uh, go to the website, recharge the game uh, okay. on, on the internet. So uh, it's it's a it's a do good while while earning money type of thing. It's it's not a yeah. nonprofit uh, venture. Right. It's a for it's a for profit uh, product, but that has that, that also does good. Okay, Jeff, give the name of your uh, website so people that are interested in in the process you're doing can get involved and check it out. Sure, the website is uh, www.deskovic.org. That's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C. 
You know, on the, on the homepage, you know, there are people, uh, there's also, you know, a place where people can um, click on and, and go to the Recharge website uh, also. And then, of course, if any people are on social media, uh, so the, the Jeffrey Duskwick Foundation has a page on Facebook where there are regular posts. We function mm-hmm. as a type of aggregator on uh, articles on, on wrongful convictions uh, that are not typically found on, uh, say, the Innocence blog, for example. And there's also uh, articles regularly posted on broader criminal justice reform. There's updates on my advocacy work, different events I'm speaking at, photos of me doing Great. work, uh, meeting, with, you know, meeting with some uh, uh, famous people and just doing some interesting things. So it's... Uh, People can follow us there if they like the page. I mean, look, my pipe dream is one day maybe I'll be able to get some corporate <laughs> sponsors because we have a big enough social media following. That's one way that people um, can can assist. I mean, we have a YouTube channel. Just put in Deskovic Foundation. There's a lot of great uh, content there that people can learn more about wrongful convictions. In terms of the future, what I'm trying to do with the organization is I mean, I'm looking to further develop the board. We're trying to find, you know, large donors, small donors, and and uh, other organizations that are looking to uh, partner, say, within kind services, other ways to collaborate. Uh, you know, I started the organization, you know, because of what happened to me. I used some mm-hmm. of the compensation that I got. You know, obviously, mm-hmm. I can't sustain it indefinitely just on my own. Right. That has to be a, a group thing. Um, wrongful convictions is a, is, a, is a major problem. And just like it's a lot of people that come together to send the wrong person in prison, I mean, a lot of people For need sure. To fight against this cause, uh, fight against um, wrongful convictions. Well, Jeff, I, I have to say thank you for your commitment and your tenacity. It's so important to shine a light on these wrongful convictions. Um, gosh, thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you what you're, for what you're doing with your Foundation for Justice. We're we're at the end of our t- our hour, folks. Um, I hope you really gained a lot from uh, from Jeffrey's comments. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators and, unfortunately, situations like Jeff that uh, need to be told. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 